0: I'm going to say the lord's prayer and then get, do a prayer of um, a pastoral prayer and then uh and then we'll we'll look to the uh the preaching we pray with me let's say the lord's prayer together our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We pray with me. O Lord, we thank you that you have made us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you have knit each of us together in our mother's womb by your power and with your design. That you have called us to be yours and that you have equipped us with gifts, gifts for your church. For the building up of your church. To be living stones built up into the temple of God in which you have chosen to dwell. For you live in us and the church is not a building It's not a place. It's not even a set of beliefs. The church is your dwelling place where the power of your word is at work in and through your people. The church is not individuals set apart. It is a community united by faith. Not by the power of our faith, but by the object of that faith, and that is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King, our brother and our friend. Jesus, will you build up your church that the gates of hell will not stand against its advances. That while we grow weary in many ways, that we would not faint or give up but would continue in this calling, in this battle. For we know that the war that we wage is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual world, the spirits that are at work against you. Father, will you equip your church for that spiritual battle? Father, we pray for wisdom that we as a church would know how to navigate this time in history. We pray for those who are in positions of authority, in our lives and in the lives around us, whether it be in our workplaces or in our communities or in the states, at the federal level or even globally, that you will guide their steps and that they would lead with wisdom that comes not from human wisdom but from your wisdom, that you would draw their hearts to the power of your gospel, that they would rule with justice, In equity, not favoring the rich or the poor. That we as a church would know how to engage the world around us. That you would equip us to engage even this political season with the power of the gospel at work in us. Father, we pray also for our president who is sick and in the hospital right now that you will give him healing whether we support his policies or not we pray for those who are in those positions and we pray that you would strengthen them Oh Lord there are many other things that we could pray for in our world around us but we pray also for those things in our congregation And we pray for Sierra, that you would give her body physical healing from this cancer. She would use both the doctors and the medicine and the surgeons work to bring healing, but that your powerful, great physician hand would also be on her and bring her healing and strengthen her and her family as they battle this this great cancer. But we know it is nothing compared to your power. We thank you for the strength that you have given her and Josh and others around her. We pray that you would continue to strengthen them for that. Father, we pray for the Brummels as they prepare to set out on this new call and to move to Washington later this month. Father, we thank you for the work that you have done in and through them here and for the blessing that they have been to us as a congregation. We bless their move. And even more so, will you bless them as a couple in the ministry you have called them to there. And Father, we thank you for the Lotzes as well, and we thank you for the ministry that they have had powerfully in our congregation and for the opportunity that you've given them to move back to Indiana. And we pray for that transition, that you would bless that as well. And Lord, as we look at the weight of these transitions, we pray that you would provide for us as a church give us our daily bread. Give us what we need to minister your gospel to one another and to the church, the world around us. May this place in the park be a place of ministry and mission. May some come and hear your gospel and experience Christian fellowship here. Hear the truth of your word and come and hear and believe. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the power of the gospel that's at work. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of that may have been announcements for some of you and uh, may not be aware of those things. And uh, uh, um, I won't repeat what I said. You can understand what it is from the church or from the prayer. But um, a lot of transition happening in the church right now. also want to bring a couple of announcements here before I begin. And the first one is that we've been studying this uh, this book, uh, The Beautiful Community, by Erwin Ince, pastor and uh, um, leader in our denomination. Uh, one of only about 5% of the pastors, I think, in our denomination who are African-American, an important voice in our church and in the church, uh, particularly here in the US. And even as we've gotten into some of the conversation, it's been a little bit, uh, you know, some of the things probably are, are different, uh, uh, unsettling. It's been a great conversation. I'm thankful that we've been able to do it as a church. And we're, we're looking at um, chapter six this week and there are eight chapters total. So it probably means we'll have um, about three more weeks left. But we're also going to take a break. So tomorrow we're going to do chapter 6, and then next Monday we're going to take a break from it. We're going to have the first of our discussions on our Bible reading plan. So we're in October now, and on the back of the bulletin it's written that our reading plan is to do Genesis 26 through 50, the second half of Genesis, Acts 1 through 28, and Psalms uh, 5 through 8. And... Last month we didn't do this because we were doing the book study, but um, but the plan is once a month, we're gonna get together right now on Zoom primarily because I think childcare is gonna be tough, kind of kids and everything. Um, so we're gonna start with Zoom and then we'll, we'll figure this out how to do it more in person. But to have uh, um, both a little bit of time of teaching on how to read Genesis. I mean, if you've been reading one through 25, if you're familiar with it or even haven't read it in a while, there are always those things that are really familiar, and you think, oh, I know these stories. And then there are always those things that jump out at you, and you think, I haven't seen that before. And that's that's tough to read. And the Bible can be uh, tough to read at times, and uh, and it's good to study it together as a, as a community. So we're going to look at doing that. We're going to do that on the, the 12th, and um, mark your calendars for that. Do that by Zoom on the 12th, and then we'll pick back up with beautiful community study. All right. With that. Let me just take a breath. Let's see. I'm on here on there. Let's open up in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. I feel like I'm yelling. Can you guys hear me all right if I'm speaking this or Yeah, yeah? I'm going to tone down just a touch. Matthew chapter 7. A Sermon on the Mount outside setting. Jesus uses birds and flowers as illustrations. It's captivating His audience. He's preaching not only to His 12 disciples and even the broader group that follows Him as His disciples, but to a big community. A number of people who've gathered, some of them poor and feeling... uh, feeling oppressed, feeling like they've been left out. But some of them are leaders of the people, leaders of the 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 nation of or, or the, the 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 territory that's occupied. It's not a nation, but the occupied area. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they have influence, they have power. This mixed group of people have come for different motives, different reasons. Jesus opens his sermons with words that welcome in those who feel like the outcasts. Blessed are the poor in spirit, you who mourn. But throughout this sermon, he's calling all kinds of people to himself and challenging people wherever they are. You can't walk away from the Sermon on the Mount and not feel like something hits you in the gut. Matthew chapter 7 is the third and final chapter as it's broken down for us. Jesus' audiences wouldn't Audience wouldn't have heard chapter 7 and thought this is the third of the three-part sermon. Chapter 7 is interesting because you, if you've just opened your Bibles, if you have headings, you see all of a sudden these longer passages give way to these short, seemingly untied things or, or fairly random thoughts concluding the sermon, judging others, ask. And it will be given to you, the golden rule. Do what done to others, what you would have done to you. How do you know the quality of a tree? tree? It's by the quality of the fruit it bears. A challenge. Do you really know Jesus? And and have you built your house on the rock? All these things tie together threads that Jesus has been weaving through the fabric of the sermon throughout this. And we're going to look at each of these over the next few weeks and also look back how Jesus has prepared for these points. And these are some of the the gut checks that we need to hear. It says, verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The grass withers, the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. O Lord, will you establish the work of our hands that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, pleasing to you, that they would be good for us. May we be convicted by your word and may we be assured by your word and strengthened by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, a neighbor of ours was doing some construction on their house. I won't tell you who. And it's somebody that probably most of you don't know. I'll tell you that. We didn't know them well yet. We were saying hi as they were carrying in a, a huge beam that was going to be used to replace the structural beam that went across. We thought the roof, but really it was to build a loft across. I think it was 16 feet long and at least four by six or maybe eight. It was it was a massive. Beam, And I can remember asking him what he's doing in there. And he said, oh, just some touch up because I don't think he pulled a permit for the work he was doing. When Jesus says the log in our own eyes, he's using a a word that was well known at the time, a Greek word that referred to to a hewn log, something that was used for construction, a beam that was structural support for a large structure. Jesus was a carpenter before his time of public ministry about the age of 30 to 33. The hewn logs would have been familiar to him as would have been the the moats or the f- pieces of sawdust, the the shavings on the carpenter's floor, the specks that would have been prone to get in the eyes of a builder sawing without any protective glasses. Sometimes I use illustrations from my own life and I take some comfort that Jesus uses some illustrations from his previous work experience here he's not just talking about the birds and the flowers but he's using some of his own work experience life experience to teach the people around him there's always a danger in that and one of my preaching professors helpfully instructed you can use yourself in illustrations just make sure you're not the hero of your stories That the work Jesus has done for us is always at the center, the heroic action of all of your stories. It's really not difficult to do that as a preacher when your heart is gripped by the gospel. It's very difficult to do that as a preacher when your heart is gripped by pride, Arrogance or envy of others around you. But we struggle with those things like everybody else, and perhaps more so. The helpful instruction he gives the words, probably more familiar than any other in the whole Bible in this time and place in history judge not that you be not judged are a helpful reminder, first for me, but for all of us. What they mean and how we apply them is not as easy of a task as it may seem. There is a simplicity to this passage that you almost don't want to preach on. There's an apologetic that we've brought out, an explanation of the gospel that is Probably the most poignant one for our time and place right now, and that is that we don't, as a human race, even live up to our own standards. None of us do. None of us like to be judged by others. But even if we judge ourselves and we apply this word that he says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Even if we apply that in some sense to our own lives by our own standards, we become painfully aware that we are failing. And more than that, we convince ourselves or we delude ourselves that we are succeeding by focusing on those times that things are going well. And we ignore and try to block out the times that we don't do so well. Jesus comes to this Sermon on the Mount with a word to those who are poor, who are overburdened, who feel like they're not measuring up. And his words are first and foremost, the very intro to the sermon, words of comfort that say, You are welcome in my kingdom. You have not measured up. You know that you are failing in life. And Jesus says, Come and follow me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But Jesus also sees that there's another crowd in that audience, and that is the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are different than the Sadducees. We just lump them all together. We figure Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, just all the same people, different. But they're very different. You see, the Pharisees weren't particularly powerful by wealth, but they were influential by their living. They were the ones who had some level of comfort in life and they were able to focus a lot on the teachings of the the law, the Torah, the explanations that have been carried out. They followed the law to to a T. Every I dotted, every T crossed, they were living it out. The Apostle Paul, who goes through a radical transformation in his life, was one of these Pharisees. He was zealous for the law. He was excited. He was one of those holy rollers. He was somebody who followed the rules, and whether he intended to or not, The people who were around him who knew they weren't measuring up felt. They felt it from him being in his presence. And all the other Pharisees, they felt it from these Pharisees that I'm not as good as you. Jesus has been addressing this in his sermon up to this point. You remember where he says, don't pray. Don't pray like the Pharisees. Don't feel like you have to be seen by others in order for your prayers to be effective. He says, if you are here and you are in this position of feeling beat down and overburdened, know that the gospel, Jesus' kingdom is for you. Hear the words of the Beatitudes. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're living up to all the standards Beware that you might be in the category of that Pharisee. The Apostle Paul, he oftentimes calls them the hypocrites because their actions seem to indicate that they are near to God, but their hearts are far from God. Jesus very clearly has the Pharisees in mind when he's speaking of those who have that beam in their eye. And whether we act as Pharisees or not, some people may be in that category who are listening here today. I'm not calling out anybody in particular because I don't have anybody in mind who's truly in our congregation acting Pharisaical. It does happen oftentimes in the church, and there are some categories that we can have. But we can still hear this teaching and come with two particular questions. One, is there an element of hypocrisy in my life? Do I have a beam in my own eye? And two, what does Jesus want us to do? Who does Jesus want us to be, or maybe more particularly, to become? To simplify that question, are we actually to judge? Because the application, the understanding that most people bring when they quote this verse is, they don't want us to judge anything. They don't want you to judge anything. Now, of course, there's an irony there, because most people are judging you for judging them as soon as they do that. And in fact, there's a reality that each of us has to make judgment calls all the time, every day, in all of life. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Should I go with this person to do this other thing or should I not do that? Is what this person is doing going to bring harm to them or bring harm to others? Jesus, even in the words at the very end of this that are kind of lumped into this section in most translations, but really deserve their own heading and category in verse 6, he calls his disciples in particular to judge whether certain people are acting as dogs or as pigs. Kind of harsh. But even there, I'll let you in on a secret. Those who are dogs and pigs have particular references, typically when Jesus and others speak of them. The pigs The pigs are oftentimes associated with the Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish people. By the food laws established by Moses, given by God, they weren't to have anything to do with pigs. Not eat them, not touch them, not having them around... They were unclean, they had to have no contact. In the ancient world, archeologically, you can still go and see evidence of this where where in the land of the Philistines, just by the the place where the people of Israel lived, all kinds of pigs. And you go just a few miles where Israel dwelled, no evidence of pig carcasses or or pig uh, remains, bones. They took that very seriously. Throughout this sermon, Jesus has been talking about Gentiles. Often the pigs are those who are associated with the Gentiles. The dogs, too, have a particular reference in Scripture. The dogs are those who tend to bite and devour other people. They're given an element of truth. They're given something holy, and they go and use it against other people for their own personal gain. You see this play out in all kinds of false teachers. You hear of it even when Paul's talking about the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh, and the works of the flesh are those things that are biting and devouring one another. The dogs use what is holy for their own benefit and gain. The pigs and the dogs. Jesus is teaching his disciples that they need to judge who are the dogs and the pigs. Now you say, aren't the Gentiles supposed to be those coming into the kingdom? Doesn't Jesus expand his kingdom to bring the Gentiles in? Don't a lot of Gentiles come and believe? And the answer to that is absolutely yes. And you don't even have to look outside of the Sermon on the Mount to see this actual explanation of the good news going to the Gentiles. Now, Jesus critiques the Gentiles. He critiques them just as he does the Pharisees. Earlier when he's saying, don't pray, don't be like the Pharisees who pray to be seen, but he also says don't pray like the Gentiles who think they're all their fancy words are going to make their prayers more effective. Keep your prayers simple, and he gives the Lord's Prayer. For the Gentiles were shaped by the Greco-Roman culture, one of the most developed cultures in all of history who had beautiful words and beautiful writings, and their salvation... Their salvation in their mindset came from their advancement in their culture. Isn't it so familiar to our culture, the advancement of our thought and our words and our our culture, our community? We look to as if it's going to be our Savior, but Jesus critiques that as well. And he says, look, if you cast your pearls to that, if you look to that culture to be your Savior, you will be trampled underfoot. The treasure, the treasure of Jesus and his gospel that moth and rust can't destroy. He says that treasure, that moth and rust not being able to destroy, the truth of it won't be destroyed, but what could be destroyed is your life in the process. If you you think that your salvation is coming from that place, do not give dogs what is holy. Lest they bite and devour not only you, but many other people in the process. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. But I want to use that to help us to go and see where Jesus' thread of thought is going and turn back to chapter 5. And right after Jesus gives his beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You remember what came after that? It's one of the sections that I think most is most forgettable about the Sermon on the Mount. We remember what comes after this with, the, you, you know, don't, uh, don't be angry, don't lust, don't, you know, all of those explanations. But do you remember this You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And what about this? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let me follow this through a little bit and read a few other verses. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Matthew 6, 22 to 25. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness If then the light that is in you is darkness how great is the darkness See do I need to put the pieces together here I will The eye is the light of the body It's not that the light is going out through our eyes but what comes into the body through the eye gives it light Jesus says also, if, if the eye is causing you to stumble in lust, cut it out. You Remember that vivid imagery, imagery in, in earlier in chapter, chapter 6. The light that's coming into the body comes in through the eye and the light has a purpose. And it's not just for you as an individual to be doing the right thing. The eye has a purpose. It's to let the light into the body so that the whole person can receive the light that comes from God and bear witness, be on mission to the world of unbelievers around us. That's what a Gentile is. A Gentile is somebody who's not a Jew. There are two categories of people Those who are followers of Christ, who are in Christ's kingdom, and those who are not. And Jesus here in this sermon is commissioning his disciples there and then calling many other in that audience and also commissioning us here to be ambassadors of God's light to the world around us. And the way that we do that is by having the light within us. And now isn't it interesting how he describes how light can be stopped up from coming into us. Because our temptation is to think that the light that's in our lives is all the good things that we do. But Jesus is pointing specifically to the hypocrites, the Pharisees, and saying, you're doing all kinds of good things. But you have no light in you. There is a beam that is sitting over your whole head that's covering both of your eyes and your whole body. And it begs the question, what's the answer to that? What is Jesus calling those Pharisees to do? What's he calling us to do? What's he calling the person who has just a speck of dust in his eye to do? Is the answer simply to not judge? To just let everything live and let be and uh, and, and don't do anything and just can't we all get along? The answer is very clear in the text. Go back to chapter 7 with me and look at this. Verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You see what's happening here? He says, you have a responsibility to be your brother's keeper. You remember that famous line when Cain kills Abel and God comes to Cain? Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons. Cain kills Abel out of what? Jealousy, envy, covetousness. God comes to Cain and he says, where is your brother? In a rhetorical question. And Cain's answer is, am I my brother's keeper? And God doesn't answer his question specifically, but implicitly throughout the scriptures, we can see, yes, we are our brother's keeper. We have to know that we're prone to a hypocrisy when we try to do those things. The language of it. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Is Jesus affirming that role that yes, we are called to offer correction to one another. That that speck of sawdust, man, it's irritating. It can be it can be annoying it needs to be taken out just a a year and a half or so ago i got something in my eye um helping another neighbor doing something weird and so a cord hit my eye and and there was something stuck in there There there's a speck of it and i i thought it'll just flush out over time and three weeks went by and i finally went to the eye doctor And she saw it and she took it out right there. She was able to take out that speck from my eye. I needed it to be taken out. Jesus has called us to be a people who can judge rightly. Who can discern things in other people's lives that are going poorly. That they need help correcting. That's a mark of maturity in a believer's life. But don't we all know what it's like to be around somebody who thinks that they have all of the answers all of the time? That person is never invited in by somebody to give advice. And all of us, whether we're in the category of full-blown Pharisee or hypocrite or any of us, need to constantly be coming back to this passage and saying, "Am am I in a place where I can offer correction to another person? Do the people I offer correction to heed my advice? Do I have something in my own eye that is blocking my counsel to other people? Jesus warns us that it's possible that you don't have the light of Christ in you at all if you're not doing these things. It's more likely that you're just immature and need to grow into this maturity. But the thing that makes the corrective person, the helpful corrective, most attractive, the people that you know who are most attractive, Brilliant in the light of the gospel shining in them are the people who understand that Jesus comes to judge us in a way that is completely undeserved. Completely unmerited because here is Jesus who has absolutely nothing in his eye. And yet, how does he come to the woman in John 4 who's at the well who has been through seven marriages? How does he treat the prostitutes who come into the house wanting an audience with Jesus and who every Pharisee is saying, send away, you don't have anything to do with this woman. How does he treat Zacchaeus, who's not just a tax collector, who's guilty of of, uh, of, of Collecting extra taxes and, and uh, abusing the, the, the people. How does he treat all of those people? He treats them with grace and mercy. He has nothing in his eye and yet he welcomes them into his presence and says, my love is for you. I didn't come to save the righteous, but the sinner, the guilty. I came to call the outcasts, the people who can't measure up, who understand that they can't measure up to these things. I came to save you. And that has a powerful, transformative effect in the life of the believer. I've read a few authors. I reference Tim Keller all the time. But two of the other most influential authors that I've uh, read and come across and keep coming back to her, two pastors uh, about a, a generation ago. One is Jack Miller who planted a church uh, in Philadelphia and the other is Francis Schaefer, who uh, pastored a church in St. Louis and then went as a missionary in uh, Switzerland. And these two men are, are fascinating because both of them, when they're about my age, come to a crisis in their ministry. Now maybe I'm telling you I'm having a crisis, maybe not. I'm not explicitly saying it. But here's the crisis in their ministry. They've they've been going through the motions and they've grown weary because they don't see transformative work in people's lives around them. The gospel isn't changing people and actually, it's not changing themselves. It's not changing them, each of them. And every pastor faces this. They, they grow weary because people don't change easily. And in fact, most of us get pretty comfortable in our own lives and in our sins. We're happy with the specks that are in our lives because they're manageable specks. We can see all right around them. We've learned to adapt to them, but... But what Jesus does time and time again in his gospel, he's doing it here as well. And he's pressing in to say that if your life is not constantly characterized by the transforming work of the power of the gospel in you, where things in your life are being uncovered, patterns are being changed, sins are being confessed. If you're not constantly experiencing that power of the gospel in your life, You're in a very dangerous place. And it's dangerous not only for you, but for those around you. If I flip this over and talk about the one who has the speck in his eye, are you willing to hear the counsel of others? Do you receive correction well, or do you buck against it any time it comes an inch closer toward you? Do you keep other people at an arm's length because you are afraid if they got into your business that they would mess something up? If you're doing that with people, you're most likely doing that with Jesus himself. And if you're not in that position of the Beatitudes and the poverty of spirit... And what was the fourth one? Do you remember this one? Most of us don't. I oftentimes don't even say it when I say, you know, the, uh, uh, the poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek. But what's the next one? It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, it's easy to, stay, to hear the story of the Pharisees and think, oh, they're so awful, and oh, they just love the law so much, and they put so... I hate all the Pharisees around me. May I never be a Pharisee. And then miss the mark on the completely other side of the the target. And say, I'm never going to be a Pharisee. I'm going to live in the freedom that Christ has given me, that I can do whatever I want or maybe some variation of that. And other people are going to see that freedom in my life and they're going to think what a great thing for the gospel to have. But Jesus says, "No, that's a that's a slave master, just a totally different type of slave master." Paul addresses this. In his letters he says, "Where grace about where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more." And so the question comes up, well, shouldn't we just sin that grace would abound all the more? We would receive Jesus Christ, by no means, no way should you do that, for you have died to that sin. Because sin brings death. But now we're called to live to righteousness. Because that righteousness is life not just for us, but it's life to others. Sin is sin is just taking from others what's not ours. It's stealing. It's a debt. Sin is not God trying to squelch our fun or anything. Sin is us being selfish. And we're selfish when we're fearful. We're selfish when we're envious. We're selfish when we're coveting what other people have. We're selfish when we don't feel like we're getting our due, our respect, or whatever else it is. And the power of the gospel is Jesus coming into your life, wherever you are, whatever kind of sinner you are, and saying, Your sin doesn't characterize your life anymore. You are a child of God. You are a brother of Christ, a sister of Christ. You have been made an ambassador of Christ in his kingdom. You are the light of the world. Your sin, whether it's judging others or other kinds of sin, causes darkness to not be able to come in to light to be the fuel of that. But there's something far greater for you, and that is that you are the light of the world, and it's not based on all the righteous things you do. It's not based on all the freedoms you live into because Jesus died for your sins and His grace covers every single one of them. The light comes into you when you look at Jesus and behold how beautiful he is in his righteousness and in the way that he comes in and he judges fairly and rightly in your life to bring transformation and correction into your life. We are called to be the light of the world with Jesus as that light in us. Let's, Let's pray. Father, will you fill us with this marvelous light? That we would be convicted when we judge others, but also convicted when we feel like we can't offer correction to others. Will you convict our hearts of the sin within us and help us to love and to draw near to one another that we as a church would be filled with this light? that it would shine out even as we gather here in the park, not only from these words that are preached, but also from the power of your gospel at work in our lives as we enjoy fellowship with one another. Father, we, you, transform our lives that we would never grow weary of doing good, but be renewed by the power of your gospel in us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.